Well, I guess we found out who has that song memorized and who doesn't. <laughs> I was thinking, talking about listening to the Super Bowl, it didn't occur to me until I was sitting there and Bobby said that, that with all this massive headgear on, I could have an earpiece in listening to the game and nobody would ever know. You'd just think it was part of this mic. Um, but that might distract me a little bit from what I was going to say, so I suppose that's not the best idea after all. Ed Leonard was a driller. The 60-year-old Canadian had four decades of experience, most of it in South America. And that's how he got a job working as a foreman on a gold exploration site in Colombia in 1998. Now, Colombia is not exactly the safest place to travel to even today. Uh, just last summer, in fact, the State Department issued a level two travel advisory, which means exercise caution because of the threat of crime and violence in certain parts of the country. So in other words, I don't know about you, but I'm not going to go out and buy a, a plane ticket to go and travel down and see all the sites in Colombia. But it was even worse 20 years ago. A rebel Marxist guerrilla group called the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia made a habit of financing their decades-long war with the government by kidnapping people and holding them for ransom. So just as an example, in 1997, 1,800 people were kidnapped in Colombia, 33 of them foreigners. Well, after only a week on the job, Ed Leonard found himself one of their victims. Two men walked onto the job site. They took him by the arm, and one of them said, you're coming with us. For 40 days, they walked deeper and deeper into the rainforest. It rained all the time, and Leonard was sopping wet. He was malnourished. He had diarrhea. Ultimately, he lost 21 pounds over the course of all of this. He bathed in frigid rivers. He lived in a tent. Finally, they stopped and holed up at an old coffee plantation up in the Andes Mountains where he was guarded by 11 men and women with automatic weapons. Well, meanwhile, the owner of the drilling company, a fellow named Norbert Reinhardt, was at his wit's end trying to figure out how to get Leonard out because the company simply didn't have enough money to pay the exorbitant ransom that the rebels were demanding. He called Leonard's wife every 12 hours for that first week after he'd been captured, just assuring her that everything was going to be okay. But he started to grow increasingly frustrated because he felt like neither the government uh, nor the gold mining company that had contracted his drilling company was doing enough to get Leonard out. Well, finally, after 105 days in captivity, Leonard's kidnappers suddenly came to him one morning and they told him there was going to be an exchange. And after walking down a desolate, rocky road, he met a man he'd never seen before, Norbert Reinhardt. And Reinhardt said to him, you must be Ed Leonard. Your shift's over. It's time for you to go home. Reinhardt voluntarily took Leonard's place. 
and it almost certainly saved Leonard's life. He'd been plotting his escape, and even if he'd somehow gotten away from all of those armed guards, there's obviously no guarantee he would have made it out of the Andes Mountains or out of the jungle and back to civilization. Reinhardt was eventually freed, but only after he spent months in captivity himself, and then they had to pay quite a ransom to get him out. As Leonard told reporters afterwards, he said, quote, There is no way to put it in words when somebody basically gives his life for you. But there is a way to put that in words. One word, in fact, appropriately enough. And that word is grace. The word grace actually isn't found all that frequently in the Old Testament. That might surprise you. Uh, Or at least when I say it's not found, we don't find it too much in our English Bibles. And that's because conceptually, when we think about grace, we typically apply that to God. And the Hebrew word that can be translated as grace has a, a wider field of meaning so that most of the time it's not translated that way in English to avoid any sort of confusion. Now, that doesn't mean the concept is not there in the Old Testament. We're going to see that. Uh, But it does mean that other words in Hebrew are used to carry that concept that's revealed to us as grace in the New Testament. So it's, it's really up to the New Testament then to spell out what grace means. The Greek word is charis. And that's a word that was commonly used in secular Greek in the ancient world. It basically means favor or kindness. And that was used in a few different ways. So the first sense was of anything that brings you delight or wins favor. Uh, Good food, good drink, that could carry charis with it because it's favorable to you. Uh, It was used of people's word choices, uh, when you speak delicately or when you're tactful, you have chorus. Well, secondly, then, by extension, it was used in an ethical sense. You show chorus by being benevolent to inferiors. Aristotle expounded on it. He said that it's that chorus is doing some good for someone who's in need with no benefit for yourself no possibility of any reward. You're doing it just because of the need you see in that person that you're doing the good for. And when one received charis, this is the third sense, you're thankful. In fact, the word for thanks is also the word charis. Remember what we said this morning? Eucharist, thanksgiving. You see chorus in the middle of that, you just drop off the first two letters and you drop off the last letter of Eucharist and you have chorus. Thanks, thanksgiving. To give chorus is to give thanks. So it's used in three senses in classical Greek. A charming quality that you possess that, that wins favor. Benevolence towards those who don't deserve it, towards your inferiors in particular. And then the response of thankfulness because of that favor that's been showed to you. And when you see those three senses, what you realize is that second sense in particular was just ready-made for the New Testament writers to pick it up and to utilize it and to apply it to God. Those other senses are also used at times. And so we need to be careful when we're reading Scripture that we don't always read in that 
meaning of God's grace to every mention of grace. You have to read it in context. But that second sense in classical Greek of benevolence towards your inferior, that was taken up by the New Testament writers, and they poured this new specific meaning into it. And it especially means God's favor, God's kindness that he shows to sinners. We find it in particular in Paul's writings. He's the one that gives it most of that meaning. Uh, The words used some 150 times in the New Testament, fully 100 of those, two-thirds of them, are found in the Apostle Paul's writings. And Paul emphasizes God's grace as his unmerited favor, his goodness that he shows to people who don't deserve it. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. We know verse 23. Paul writes that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We've talked about sin already in this series of lessons. It's rejecting the creator and it's serving ourselves instead. And that merits, that deserves wrath. Because God is holy, he can't tolerate sin. And so if he gave us what we deserve, he would pour out his wrath on us. He would punish us. But instead of giving us what we deserve, God has made a way for us to avoid punishment. Jesus paid the debt for us. And we sing a song sometimes that captures this perfectly. Uh, He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I couldn't pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. Now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. That's grace. It's God's salvation that is freely given to us. And since God's grace is unmerited favor. There's only one response that we can make to that. It's faith. The only way that you can receive any gift is faith. That is trust in the one giving it to you, relying upon them. Paul said it already. We read it. Whom God put forward in Christ, that is, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. He also says in the next chapter, verse number 16, that that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring. This is the opposite of depending on ourselves. Think about that scripture that uh, we had from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not depending on our own wit and wisdom. It's not depending on our own goodness, on anything that we can do to merit any sort of righteousness from God. It's abandoning our pride that's the root of all sin ultimately, and it's throwing ourselves completely and totally on the mercy of God, on his grace. That's precisely why we have to have faith. It's not an arbitrary response. We trust God to do what he says, to extend to us that kindness that we don't deserve. And when we realize that that's what grace is, that it's God's unmerited favor, that it's God extending kindness to those who don't deserve it. What we see is that whether the word is there or not, 
God's grace runs throughout all of Scripture. It's everywhere conceptually, even if the word isn't used. The message of Scripture is of a gracious and forgiving God. That's the way he describes himself in Exodus chapter 34. And mind you, this is right after the incident with the golden calf, a pivotal moment in Israel's history. God says in Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Of course, we know Jesus is the ultimate expression of that nature. Most famous verse in all the Bible, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God freely gave himself in Jesus Christ for us, and that's the ultimate expression of his grace. But when we understand what this is, you go back and you read through all the Bible, all of God's saving acts must be interpreted as acts of grace. You know, sometimes we think of the God of the New Testament as this God of grace and mercy and love, but the God of the Old Testament, he's vengeful and wrathful. No. Throughout Scripture, just as he says here in Exodus 34, he's gracious and forgiving. God's salvation of Noah, rather than utterly destroying sinful humanity, that's an act of grace. God's call of Abraham, establishing his covenant with him, That's an act of grace. His promise to bless him and to make a great nation of his descendants and to bless all nations of the earth through him. Abraham didn't do anything to deserve that. That was God's kindness that he showed to him. God's act of delivering Israel from Egypt. That's an act of grace. Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. Moses says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Israel didn't do anything to deserve what God did. That was his grace. And his steadfast love and his faithfulness continued towards them, even when they continued time after time after time to commit apostasy, to rebel, to turn away from him. That steadfast love and that faithfulness, that was an act of grace. All of God's saving and forgiving his calling and commissioning, his electing, his justifying, everything that he does for his children is purely based on his grace. And in particular, that applies to his choice, his amazing, incomprehensible decision to justify, to forgive, to renew, to adopt, to glorify them as his new creation in Christ. What an awesome God we serve. Thank God for his grace. That's the only appropriate response that we can make. Now maybe you're here tonight and there's sin in your life. You haven't availed yourself of the grace of God. In fact, maybe, like Paul says in Romans, 
you're continuing in sin, hoping that God's grace will abound. Paul says, God forbid. No, if we've been saved, we need to live God's kind of life. We need to turn to him in repentance. And so if you're here this evening and there's sin in your life, you need to repent of. We urge you, take that opportunity to do so right now while we stand, while we sing. Tell the 